Welcome to the Hope Fellowship Podcast, where you can listen to our weekly walk through the Bible. We do hope you enjoy your time with us today. Please check us out at hopehogansville.com. And if you feel led to support our ministry, please click the link in this episode's description. Now here's this week's walk through the Bible. I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles to Philippians, the letter to the Philippian church. Uh, starting in chapter 1, we'll pick up where we left off last week. We're kind of walking verse by verse through that. And uh, um, I think last week we started verse 27 and got about halfway through it. So we might finish verse 27 this morning. So uh, my, my hope is to get all the way through verse 30, but I'm looking at my notes and there's a, there's a chance I may just draw a line right halfway through my notes this morning and stop there. So we'll see how it goes. Um, there's just a lot packed in these verses, so much richness uh, that's revealed by Paul and just in his heart for the church and what he desires to see in the body of Christ. Um, I love reading Paul's letters because you not only get to see Paul's faithfulness to Christ and Paul's walk of faith, but you see his desire for what um, for the church, the body of Christ, and for other believers and his desire to walk alongside other believers that he's not proclaiming this message and saying, hey, everybody follow me so much as to say, let's walk together in unity as we are faithful to Christ and as we follow Jesus together. And uh, I just see that as such a rich theme in Paul's letters. And, and I hope that we feel that as we walk through this together as well. Um, there's some some unique things that we've kind of already walked through in these verses that have been encouraging. We've talked about koinonia, that, that a unique, deep spiritual bond that we have with one another in Jesus, in our faith in Jesus Christ. It is what binds us together and that, that walking in that, that unity of faith that we have. We've, we've talked a little bit about the work of God in our salvation for the purpose of exalting Jesus even through our difficult circumstances or um, uh, in, in bold, giving us boldness to preach the word of God without fear that uh, the gospel would continue to exalt Christ wherever the Lord sends us. We've talked about um, even in our lives and our death, if that may, uh, when, when the Lord requires that of us, the Lord will use that even to exalt Christ. And we've seen some of these rich things that Paul's covered, and they've been such a blessing to kind of walk through. Last week, we touched on this conduct. In verse 27, he tells us to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, and uh, this, this idea of citizenship in the kingdom of God, and our way of life as citizens of the kingdom of God, and introduces some unique uh, instructions for the church that I think have to be applied individually, but also corporately as a body. We'll kind of walk through that together. So I'm going to read these verses, and um, we'll start in verse 21 and read down through verse 30. And this morning, what I'd like to do is just kind of highlight the fact that uh, these a few principles of instruction Paul's given to us, uh, kind of a resolve as a church that with steadfast unity... We work, we believe, and we suffer for Christ's sake. But it must come with a steadfast unity with the body of Christ. So let's read through these verses together, starting in verse 21. For me, 
to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Let's pray over this for a minute or two. Father, thank you so much for these words. Uh, that you've given to us through Paul. Uh, Thank you for allowing us to see what he wrote to the Philippian church and what you desired for them and for giving these words to us um, and for uh, desiring these things of us as a fellowship. Uh, I pray that you would help us to see these instructions and hear your heart and see your heart in these words uh, for our lives as individuals and for our lives together as brothers and sisters. Please conform us into the image of your son, Jesus Christ, and continue this great work in us that you've started this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So again, what I'd love to see out of these verses and kind of expound upon this morning, something that I noticed is that the Lord is is encouraging the church to stand together with steadfast unity, to work together, to believe by faith together, and to suffer together all again for Christ's sake, for the exaltation of Jesus. Those are some of the themes that we see in these next few verses. Um, but building upon what we started with last week, because I believe this is kind of a transitional statement, in verse 27, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus, just by Just to go back over that for a second, that is not an instruction to measure up and attain to a worthiness of what God's accomplished for us, as if to say that we can um, deserve it, as if to say that because God's done this great work in our lives, let's do enough good works that we can deserve what God's done for us. That's not what this phrase, being worthy of the gospel, means. Um, in fact, it is a word that's, tra- um, that it's a Greek word that means, that's a reference to citizenship, uh, to bear the, the life characteristics that reflect a membership in a certain uh, society or a group, or in this case, a kingdom. So as citizens of the kingdom of God, what way of life reflects and honors the fact that God has made us citizens of this kingdom. We actually see this word again in chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. So you may not even have to turn a page in your Bible to see that. Philippians chapter 3, 20 and 21, 
My version says for our citizenship, that is the same Greek word as the word we see in chapter 1, verse 27, that's translated um, manner worthy. Okay, um, so that's, uh, that's the same Greek word, but they use the word citizenship in my version um, in, in this same case. So it, that is what's being talked about here. It's a citizenship for our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. Now, what's that talking about? That's talking about our future glorification, the day in which God takes this physical body and transforms it into a glorified body that is perfected, a new body. And he says, uh, after this, this conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. It is God exerting his power in our lives, transforming us, completing the work of salvation. That's why sometimes Paul refers to the believers as those who are being saved. Um, because uh, although we know that our salvation is complete in Christ, because God is outside of time and the work that he has accomplished in us is uh, to some extent, in some cases, Paul uses words that are past tense uh, in reference to the completeness of our salvation, including our glorification. So in the eyes of God, it's done. But yet for us, this is something that we look forward to, but it is God exerting his power to complete the work that he has started in us as believers. But even though we look forward to that, we are now already citizens of that kingdom. Uh, much like, uh, just to reiterate something that was brought up in our community group this past week, um, a really good point about eternal life for us is that uh, eternity uh, is not just something that we look forward to, but it's something that we know now. Because we are believers, our eternal lives have already begun. Even though the beginning of this eternal life we are experiencing here in the flesh. We know that it will continue in the future in ultimate glorification, but eternity is now including our citizenship. So considering that we're, we're kind of looking at this concept of citizenship before we dive into the rest of the words, kind of wanted to talk for a second about the kingdom of God because we're citizens of the kingdom of God. So just uh, for point of reference, you'll remember that when John the Baptist came or when he appeared and he began preaching what was the core of his message he came proclaiming that the kingdom of heaven was at hand the kingdom of heaven was at hand and who was he referring to he was referring to the fact that Jesus was coming that one greater than I is coming as he gained followers his immediate reaction was to point them all to Jesus as a fulfillment of the kingdom of God that was at hand. And then when Jesus came, when you read the words of Christ, uh, often when he refers to the work that he was doing, he refers to his work as the gospel of the kingdom. Now, typically when we refer to the gospel, we refer to it as the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? Which is not wrong. We, when we refer to the good news of God, we're referring to the good news specifically of our salvation, which only comes through Jesus Christ our Savior. So the good news for us is Jesus. 
That's the gospel of our salvation. But in the same way Jesus was saying, uh, the gospel of the kingdom is the salvation of mankind, ultimately through himself. He could have come and said, I come to proclaim to you the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he would have been speaking about himself, and he was when he said the gospel of the kingdom. So John the Baptist says, behold, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus came and said, the kingdom of heaven is here. I'm preaching to you the good news of the kingdom. And then now we know that Jesus has died and was resurrected and has ascended to the right hand of the throne of God where he sits in all authority and in all power. And we hear that when he says to the disciples in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then he commands the disciples with his authority to go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so with the authority of Jesus that he exercises in heaven and on earth, he commands the church to go and make disciples. Now, Paul builds on this concept. Uh, we read about uh, in Corinthians where Paul tells us uh, he uses the term uh, or the uh, the language of citizenship, again, in reference to the kingdom of God, where he calls us ambassadors, where he says that the believers are ambassadors. Now, ambassadors, are that's, that's only understood in reference to some form of citizenship or some form of a, a nationalistic concept where we might have embassies in other countries and we send representatives from the United States of America to those embassies to live there so that they can speak to the leaders of those countries on behalf of the United States of America. They represent us. They are representatives of the United States of America, appealing on our behalf for the policies that we find to be valuable as a country in hopes of affecting that country and maintaining good relationship with, the, with our allies or, wherever, or whatever that relationship might be. It is a very similar concept that the idea of an embassy, the idea of an ambassador has been around for, obviously, uh, thousands of years. And God, uh, through Paul, uses this language to tie us into this concept of the kingdom of God, where he calls us ambassadors who are citizens of the kingdom of God, but living here as aliens now on planet Earth. We are not citizens of this earth. We are citizens first and foremost of the kingdom of God, but we are ambassadors who are here to represent the kingdom of God as citizens. So we're not just any average citizen. Paul, I think, does a good thing for the church when he identifies every believer as an ambassador whose primary goal is to appeal to all who are lost to be reconciled to God. Our job is to make peace between those who are at war with God and the kingdom of God, who've set themselves against the kingdom of God, our job is to appeal for peace between the two. That's what embassies and ambassadors, that's one of their primary jobs, is to preserve peace. Our job here is to bring people to Christ so that they can be reconciled to God and peace can be made between a God who is between a holy God and unholy people who are at war with God. And Paul uses uh, the word beg in Corinthians where he says that we are to beg them on behalf of God to be reconciled with God. That gives you a little bit of a sense of urgency to our mission as citizens of the kingdom of God. 
We are pleading with people to be made right with God. So when you're thinking about citizenship, the kingdom of God being established, us being citizens of the kingdom of God, we are ambassadors of the kingdom of God, uh, representing Christ, representing God. And here in chapter 3, verse 20, it says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await that. But then you also have this verse here in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, where he says, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus. Now, let's just, by way of reminder, consider again the conflict that Paul had in his heart between verses 21 and 26. Remember that conflict where he said he had this strong desire to leave this earth and be with Jesus because that's very much better. So he was conflicted. He was torn between two good things. He really wants to be with Jesus. But the reason that he was content with staying is because he sees that it's more necessary for your sake to stay for the sake of the joy of your faith and the furtherance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So with that in mind, he says, we're staying. As long as God has us here, our job is to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus. As citizens of the kingdom of God, we need to make sure that our conduct and our way of life uh, honorably reflects the kingdom that we represent as ambassadors, pleading with those who are lost, on behalf of God, that they've been made right with God. Are you starting to see the, the picture of Paul's language here? Maybe I've gone on too long. Maybe that made sense to you guys a long time ago. Anyways, I really like these things. But um, now it's really important to see, because I think we can all take this on an individual basis. right? We wrestle with these things individually, personally. What does this mean for me? How, what's my responsibility as a believer in my character? How do I need to repent? How do I need to... Uh, measure my life against God's word, but then Paul shifts gears a little bit, and he um, he ties this concept in with the whole, the body of Jesus as a whole. Um, in fact, it seems to kind of imply that um, conducting ourselves, giving honor to the kingdom, the way that we are designed to give honor to the kingdom, can't be done without the body. So let's take a look at some of these words. Um, he says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Now we kind of start seeing the picture of the church come into play here. Now, he gives a little bit of a window. He, you, you can feel Paul's desire to be with the Philippians. He's most likely in prison in Rome, uh, there in Nero's house. He's preaching the gospel to everybody he can get to come over to the house, right? Everybody who comes within earshot, he's preaching. He's sending out letters for the encouragement of the church. He's receiving messengers who's telling him about the welfare of the churches and the, the health, the spiritual health of the churches so that he knows how they're doing. And he hears about specific people from within those churches and he sends encouragement out to those people. He's continuing his ministry, but his desire is to leave prison at some point and be allowed to go back and visit the Philippian people. He says, whether I come and see you or remain absent, 
I will hear of you that you are standing firm. His desire was to come see them, but he also knows that there's a good chance maybe God, it's not the will of God for him to go back and see them. And we know, or we believe strongly based on history that he did not get the chance to go back and visit the Philippian church before he died. Um, But notice his heart. His heart's desire was that even if he remains absent, he will hear of them that they've been standing firm because that's what good conduct as citizens of the kingdom of God would reflect. He's hoping that the Philippian church will continue being who God's called them to be, even in his absence, growing in the faith, maintaining this steadfast unity to an extent that the reputation of that church will reach his ears all the way in Rome and in prison, that they are well and doing good and being faithful to the calling with which they've been called. So he's hoping that the church will continue to grow and be faithful. Let's look at a few of these words. Um, this, This helps me to kind of see an answer to the question, what is conduct that honorably reflects the kingdom? We kind of looked at a couple other verses last week, cross-references that kind of give a few windows into some character qualities of, of believers who are, um, who are adequately or, uh, or honorably reflecting the kingdom of God. We can find a lot of that through Scripture, but he mentions a few things that will show up if a church is being faithful to their calling to represent the kingdom of God. These are things we'll see. These are things that we should see in our lives and, in, and as a fellowship if, we are, um, if we're healthy, if we're growing together, if we are um, honoring God's call in our lives. These are some things that we should see. The first one is a steadfast unity. Um, in my version, it says standing firm. And that, that's a word that means to be steadfast, uh, immovable. It's unwavering. Uh, so he's hoping that these... Christians will be unwavering and immovable and steady, specifically in their unity. And he mentions two kinds of unity right here. Uh, He says, standing firm in one spirit with one mind. Now that word spirit, uh, the word spirit and mind um, can be a little difficult to to differentiate. Uh, The word spirit is pneuma, which means spirit. Uh, It's usually... It's the word that you find in the Bible when the Holy Spirit is referenced, but it's also uh, the word that's, uh, that is attached to believers who have a relationship with Jesus Christ, a reference to their, um, to their immaterial, what we might translate as and call soul. Um, however, the word mind is translated uh, psyche, which is soul. Okay, it's the soul. So it we can get a little confusing. So he says with one, we could translate it with one soul and with one soul or with one spirit and with one soul. And the idea here is not to get into, I don't think Paul's really trying to help them to differentiate with the, the different parts of a human being. You know, we have body, soul, spirit, or body, soul, mind, and spirit. You know, we have parts of scripture that say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We have other parts of Scripture that refer to our soul and our spirit. So how many pieces and parts to us are there? You know, you can get into some theological books and you study about the dichotomy or the trichotomy of, uh, of, a, of the soul, which is, you know, are you body and spirit or are you body, soul and spirit? And with the mind, where does that all fit in there? 
gets a little, a little confusing. Um, it has some implications with Christian counseling and psychology and all that kind of stuff. But I don't think Paul's really trying to pull all that apart right here because he's referring to the body of Christ as a whole. And when you look at the, the, the minute differences between those words, there are some differences. One of them's a specific reference to the immaterial. And it's usually only a reference to the immaterial, uh, the, the, um, the, the spiritual, which is that first word, spirit. The second word, mind, um, or soul, is often used in the Bible with a reference to spiritual as well as physical. It's usually a reference to the whole person, which would include the will. It would include the mind. It would include the the immaterial. It would include the inner life, uh, the the part of us that um, that uses understanding and discernment. Uh, so it is a this combination is a reference to wholeness. So I believe when Paul is emphasizing the spirit and the soul, or the spirit and the mind, which would include the the physical and the immaterial, he's referring to the whole person. And specifically now in reference to the whole body of Jesus, all the believers, he's referring to the whole body and all aspects of our lives, both the spiritual and the physical. So just to make it simple, I believe he's calling us to be unified in spirit. Specifically, we are unified in our relationships with Jesus. Okay, just to be to be uh, as... Um, uncomplicated as possible, um, to be unified in our relationships with Jesus. Our souls uh, are knit together because of our relationship with Jesus Christ. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We have souls that have in common our faith in Jesus Christ. This goes back to that concept of koinonia that we looked at a little bit in, earlier in chapter 1. Um, where this is what we have in common and this is where what we share in together is our faith in Jesus, but also in our mind or our way of life. This is going to be all of, um, this is going to be all of us, which goes back to that concept of conduct. So our conduct, our way of life, our, um, our mindset, our desire, our mission, our goal in life, our, um, our purpose, we are unified in as believers, as brothers and sisters in Christ, first and foremost because we're spiritually believers in Jesus and have been saved by Jesus, but also now because we are all on the same, um, the same mission, the same goal, the same way of life. So, You'll kind of consider for a minute what it means to be um, unified in spirit and in um, body. First of all, we think a little bit about, um, I think, about my individual responsibility to that again, which would be, uh, first of all, do I know Jesus? Am I, um, am I saved by Christ? Has Christ changed my heart? Um, and if he, if he has, then I am, um, I have the presence of the Holy Spirit of God within me. And because of that, I have something in common with you that I can share. But then also I have a calling and a command and a mandate from God's word to live a certain way as a believer. 
And so I see that in God's word. I see it in his law. I see it in uh, the prophets. I see it in uh, the history of the Old Testament. I see it in the, uh, the apostles and their instructions and the, Paul's commands here to conduct myself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I see these instructions as an individual person. And it's one thing for all of us to recognize that we're believers together and that we're all responsible for being obedient to Jesus together. We kind of recognize that we're all growing in that and we're all going to be on some different pages when it comes to being obedient to Jesus. But to some extent, we have to be unified in what that is. We need to recognize together that there is a truth that God has given to us that does not change. There is a purpose for the church that God has ordained that does not change from one fellowship to another. It's the same. There is a, a law and a gospel that we are to live by that we should be together in. So this is one of the reasons that we have... Um, that we kind of have a little bit of a membership process at our church. So people say, well, why membership? Why do we have, you know, where is that in the New Testament? And it is, it's a little bit um, ambiguous. You don't find Paul writing about some policies and procedures where the church is to, you know, um, have a little class and teach them the Baptist faith and message and then take them through a little, you know, and then make sure that they, um, do this and that, and then you can affirm them as members of your church. But what you do see is that there is a, there is a recognition between the believers of these churches that they're on the same page and they're striving for the same goals. And Paul is encouraging the church to strive in that and to be steadfast in that and to not waver in that. It's one thing to recognize that we, are, that we all kind of have that individually, but to come together in that, to agree on where the Lord has called us to be as a church and to move forward together in that and to be steadfast in that, unwavering, consistent that we're not blown and tossed by the winds of culture and the winds of other doctrines that rise and fall, but we've, we've studied God's word enough to recognize what doctrine is. Doctrine is, is, a, is a, um, it's an old word that simply means teaching. Some people don't like the word doctrine because that implies that uh, we have, we're, we're just a little too dogmatic about what we believe. Right. And uh, that's harsh. It's kind of judgmental of those who don't agree with us. But the word doctrine just simply means teaching. And there is such thing as bad teaching and there's such thing as good teaching. There's such thing as false and there's such thing as true. It is possible to be wrong and churches are wrong all the time. And that's why it's really important for us to know God's word and to study it, to establish what we might discern to be good doctrine good teaching, especially if we're going to teach it. If we're going to pass it down from, it's one thing to believe something and just call it your opinion. You can hold on to whatever opinion you want. It's still a free country, at least for a little while. So you can believe what you want. But if we're going to pass it down, we surely need to know that we're passing down good teaching. Otherwise, we're going to be held responsible by God for passing down false teaching. And scripture gives us a pretty clear indication that there are some pretty severe ramifications for individuals and churches who become false prophets and false teachers, right? So we ought to use caution. And so when Paul is telling them, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel, and as, as a church, 
if you're going to adequately reflect the kingdom of God, you need to reflect the truth about the kingdom of God, and you need to be together in that, and it needs to be consistent. It needs to be steady. And that's tough. That's a big responsibility. That's why the church needs theologians, um, not just uh, the guys that run our uh, seminaries and write the books that we buy, but right here in our fellowship, we need theologians. We need studiers. We need people to, uh, to help shepherd the church in the truth. And we need to raise up the believers to, to grow in these truths. And uh, something that kind of came to be in the early church, I think uh, as early as the second century, uh, before um, well, before a believer was allowed to actually worship with some of the, the, the fellowships, depending on where they were at in, in particular regions, um, they went through a process of determining whether or not that person was actually a believer. Why? Because of persecution. Because it wasn't long before the dispersion took place and persecution sent Christians all over the world for the sake of saving themselves and their families. But with that went the gospel and churches were planted. Um, and, but in that dispersion, false teachings uh, began to rise and uh, false teachings about the law, uh, false teachings about, um, about the Trinity, false teachings about all kinds of things began to give rise uh, within the individual churches. And so for the sake of maintaining the truth, new believers, they called them catechumens. I'm probably mispronouncing that, okay? But it's a, it's, it's a word that means to catechize. A catechize is a systematic process of teaching. So you have a, a list of questions and answers, or we might have what we call catechisms today, which is a list of questions and answers. But then they had, um, they had these classes where they would take new believers and they would systematically teach them what God's word says. And after they had been systematically taught the accuracy of scripture or what God has said, then if they showed evidence by the fruit of their, um, their lives that they were genuine believers, they would baptize them. They were actually slower to baptize in the second century than they were in the first. In the first century, you had guys like uh, Philip in the Ethiopian eunuch, and he says, what prevents me from being baptized? And Philip says, nothing, let's get baptized. You know, and so he baptizes them, right? I think there's a place for that. It's okay to do that. When you, can, when you lead somebody to the Lord and it's evident that they are genuinely converted, there's a place for that. But the reason that they began to slow that process down was because it was so much false teaching. They had to discern which Jesus this person actually believes in. Because they might say they believe in Jesus, but if they believe in a Jesus that's not the Jesus of the Bible, they're believing in something false and they're not actually a, a converted believer. And then they also had the problem with persecution, people um, finding these secret churches and ratting them out to the government so that they could be arrested and punished for their rebellion. And so people would pretend to become believers. And so they, they kept them away from the secret fellowships in order to protect the flock. So they, that gave rise to some of these precautions that, went, that took place in the early church. But I think in our culture today, it's a little bit different than there. Here in America, we still have reason to take caution as we're leading people to the Lord. To make sure that, one, we're preaching the right Jesus so that people who are putting their faith in Jesus are actually putting their faith in uh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, 
the, the one true God, Yahweh, and the, and the Jesus of our, uh, of, of our salvation. Not some false perspective of that. We need to preach the right Jesus, but we also need to make sure that people are growing in that. And as a church, we are growing together in that. So when Paul says, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, standing firm in one spirit with one mind, we are saved by one Jesus. Our spirits are knit together by one Jesus, not all the different variations of Jesus. Uh, There is one true Jesus that knits us together. We need to make sure that's the one that binds us together. And then with one mind, one mission, one, one doctrine, we are moving forward in the faith. Have I said enough about that? I think it's, it's pretty exciting. I think it's pretty clear um, that's kind of where he's going. He gives us a little more about that. He uses the phrase striving together. Striving together, which, is, which means work. That's work. Um, and it, it actually implies a competition, we're working together, competing, and this brings back into uh, the picture, that concept that Job gave us, where he talks about competing for the faith. I feel the necessity to write to you, earnestly appealing to you, that you contend for the faith, which was once for all handed down to all the saints. This is what Job gave to the church. Contend for the faith. It's been handed down from generation to generation. That's a, that's a reference to competition. And what are we competing against? Everything I just shared. The false teaching, the false doctrine that would lead someone to destruction rather than salvation. And unfortunately, it leads people to destruction all the while believing that they're saved. How devastating is that? So it's the church's responsibility. If we're going to accurately represent the kingdom of God, then we need, to, we need to shed light onto the truth in such a way that it stands out from all the other teachings in the world that seem to rival ours, that make everybody say, how do you know yours is not the one that's false? How do you know yours is the right one? There's so many ways to believe. How do we know they're not all just different ways of getting to the top of the mountain? We need to study God's word and know it well enough that we can exalt the kingdom of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ in a unified fashion, competing together specifically for, what does it say? For the faith of the gospel. Standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. So as a church, we have a unified mission. It's the gospel. It's the kingdom of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ and our salvation. So if we want to figure out all kinds of different strategies for how we're going to do that here in Hogansville or the surrounding areas or what programs we're going to add to our fellowship or how many more community groups we're going to add, how big we're going to get before we, um, before we plant a new church or, you know, we got all, we might have, who knows what, what strategy the Lord may give us, but regardless of all that, it's the same mission. It's the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why we exist. Some people say, well, that's too broad. You need something more specific than that. I think that's pretty specific. Advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Preaching Jesus. Now, um, we see that already in some of these verses that he's given to us. Notice in verse 25, if you back up a little bit, he says, convinced of this, because this is right after he says, "I, I conclude that it's, it's necessary, it's more necessary for me to stay. Even though I desire to leave, it's more necessary for me to stay. Why? This is why he says, 
convinced of this. I'm convinced. I need to stay. I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. I want to stay for you. I'm here for you that you would progress in your faith and grow in joy. Now, how does he do that? It's by the administration of the gospel of Jesus in, in, in the lives of the believers. You know what? All the letters that Paul wrote, I'm going to go ahead and say all because um, I can't think of a, any particular one of them where he did not preach the gospel. I think in every single letter Paul wrote to the church, he preached the gospel. But guess who they were written to? The church. They were written to the believers. He's preaching the gospel to the believers over and over again. Why? To help them grow more unified in their mission as a church so that they, because a lot of the churches dealt with false teachings. You read Corinthians, you read Ephesians, uh, you read Galatians. They had issues in their church that he specifically addressed, even the Philippian church. We're going to get to a couple of people he calls out by name from Rome because they're causing problems. And he says, you know, he addresses issues within the church. And uh, his desire was to create more unity. And his desire was to minister to them by reminding them of the gospel of Jesus Christ again and again and again, preaching Jesus to them. So because he knew that would progress their faith and give them joy in their faith. Also look at verse 22. He said, if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. So he knows that as long as he stays on this earth, the purpose is fruitful labor. And then we see it also in, uh, in verses 12 through, uh, through 18, where he talks about being in prison and everybody who's come to meet him, he's preached the gospel to him. He knows that's his job, is to preach Jesus. Everybody he comes in contact with. And, and as a result of his imprisonment, it gave greater confidence and boldness to the rest of the church to continue preaching, the G, preaching Jesus themselves. And he trusted that even if some of them had poor motives, that the gospel was being advanced nonetheless. Right? So, so Paul's desire was to administer the gospel of Jesus Christ to the church. That is fruitful labor. He believes that that our job is to have courage, to continue speaking the word of God. It's a competition together. Now, uh, before I go any further, we may actually just kind of wrap it up right here this morning because there's a couple things I want to say about this that are interesting. Um, there's a couple words and phrases Paul uses here that are not common in Jewish literature, uh, but they are common in, in Roman culture. And he is in Rome, and he's preaching to a church that is under Roman authority, um, the Philippi was a, a Roman colony, um, and uh, th these were phrases that were kind of common in regards to uh, warfare and uh, Roman battlefields, specifically this concept of standing firm. Uh, he says, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, whether I come to see you or remain absent, I'll hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. That striving together is a phrase that was used in the Roman culture for standing side by side on a battlefield and linking shields together. It was the, um, it was the uh, interlocking of shields for the purpose of protecting not just yourself, but the guys next to you. Because on a battlefield, I've never been on a battlefield, I've watched a few movies, but, um, 
but I think if you stand on a battlefield and most shields, they're only so big. They're designed to protect you from the attack in front. You have an offensive weapon and a defensive weapon, and they can kind of be used in both fashions. But in, uh, in most cases, if you are in a situation where you have more than one opponent, you can protect yourself from one, maybe two, but probably not three. You leave yourself vulnerable in other places. And when an army would stand together and link shields together and interlock their shields, they're defending not only themselves, but their neighbors' vulnerabilities. Which is a unique concept. We see that in God's word where he ties in this, in Paul, he ties in this battlefield uh, terminology in a number of cases. Even in Ephesians chapter 6, we see the armor of God. Where he tells us that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces of darkness in the heavenly places. And he says that he gives us these pieces of the armor, one of which is the shield of faith. We know that our faith guards our heart from the temptations of this world. And it guards our hearts from, from, the, from the, uh, the difficulties, the battles that we face. But when we stand together as a church, we interlock our faith with one another, guarding not only our own hearts, but the hearts of our brothers and sisters in Christ. So when we go to community group with each other, or when we hear about things that are going on in each other's lives, or when we confess sin to one another and we pray for each other through things, we recognize each other's vulnerabilities and we preach gospel to each other. Not condemnation and not judgment, not how dare you, you're a believer, why are you acting like that? Instead, we recognize it as a vulnerability for a brother in Christ on the same battlefield having in common our citizenship in the kingdom of God. And we come alongside them and we stand next to them, our faith next to their faith, meaning that just because they're struggling with sin doesn't mean that their faith is invalidated and mine is not. But our faith, we're trusting in their salvation as much as we trust in our own salvation. And we stand next to them and then we preach the truth to them that we might help guard them from. And vulnerabilities kind of imply things that we can't always see. You know, on a battlefield, um, you know, I'm assuming that even the tr most trained of soldiers can't see behind their back. They can't see what's coming up behind them. That's why they need the, the people working next to them to help guard them as they work together. And we see each other's vulnerabilities and their weaknesses in the faith. And we come alongside each other for the purpose of encouragement, strength, and growth in the faith in order that we can fulfill what Paul is telling us to do in standing firm. If we don't work together, we won't stand firm. And I think it's tried and true that people who claim to be Christians who do not walk with the body of Christ will not stand firm in their faith. It will be, uh, and, and we as a fellowship will not stand firm against the struggles of culture and the, the opposition that will come against us because we're believers. We will not stand the test of time as a fellowship unless we are unified in what we believe and where we're going as citizens of the kingdom of Christ. That's why we must continue to grow in that. So um, there's a, another word that, um, that he uses, that phrase, alarmed. And we'll, I think, you know what, we're going to kind of come to that next week. Uh, a couple things I want to encourage you to pray through as we kind of consider these things right here. Um, as an individual, as an individual, I think it's good for us to ask if we are standing fast in our faith. 
Are we steadfast or are we wavering uh, because with the difficulties of life and with the temptations of the day and with, uh, and with our vices of our flesh and the former lives that we were saved from, do we continue to waver in that or are we standing steadfast in our faith? And as a church, am I standing, am I steadfast in my unity with my brothers and sisters around me? Am I working? That, that implies a little bit of work. It's not easy to get involved in a brother or sister's life. And we, we have to make time for that. We have to overcome our differences. We have to try to sometimes navigate awkward and difficult conversations where we misunderstand each other sometimes. Um, we have to agree to disagree at times. And, uh, but it requires grace, it requires mercy, it requires patience, and it requires faithfulness to one another. So a uh, one word that stands to mind, uh, comes to my mind, is the word committed. You know, we have, a, we have a membership statement. The reason we have that is because, um, one, we start out making a confession of faith to each other. We confess that we're believers in Jesus. And then we walk together for a season to see if that confession is true. Is there fruit to support that so that we can affirm that in one another? But then we, we have a little statement that kind of says we're striving to, to obey the Lord and to walk in his ways and to, to love the church and to submit to the authority of, of the leadership that God's given to us. And we kind of do that, but it's a form of commitment as well. And I know our culture doesn't like commitment. But I think what Paul, what we do see in the New Testament, maybe they don't have a roll sheet, right? Where they're checking it off every week. I doubt they had that, all right? But they knew who was there. They knew who were believers. They knew who was with them and who wasn't. And they were working to bring people into that fellowship so that they could minister to them. It's hard to affirm someone's faith when they're doubting if you don't know if they're actually saved. In fact, you shouldn't. You shouldn't affirm somebody's faith if you don't actually know that they're saved. Because, again, you could be leading somebody to destruction under the false pretense that they're saved. Right? So that's why it's important to know who the believers are. But the word commitment comes into play because we are making a commitment verbally and by our lives that we're going to stand with you. We're going to stand next to you. We're going to walk beside you. We're going to suffer with you. We're going to weep with you. We're going to rejoice with you. And we're committed. So when things get hard, you know that we are a family. Not because we like each other always, but because we are unified by Jesus together. And we will see the kingdom of God together. And we will be given new bodies, not because uh, God likes me more than you, but because we're both saved by the grace of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. So this is an important concept for us to wrestle with. You know, are we steadfast with our believers in the church? Are we committed? Are we committed to our brothers and sisters in Christ? And then uh, am I standing side by side with my brothers and sisters for the purpose of exalting Jesus? exalting Jesus in the lives of my brothers and sisters and also as they are attempting to reach people with Jesus. Uh, I know uh, many of you are trying to share Christ with people in your lives that don't know Jesus. 
And that's a hard task, especially if you're trying to do that on your own. And what a, what a rich blessing if we can find a way to come alongside you in that and help you bring those people to faith in Jesus. How can we stand side by side with you in that battle? Even if we can't, maybe we're not, in today's climate, not just anybody can walk into your workplace, right? To stand next to you while you share Jesus with somebody. But maybe if you're struggling in your faith or growing in discouragement in that, we're right there noticing that discouragement so that we can pray with you and encourage you to continue preaching Jesus to those people and to not quit. Because some of those people that are your coworkers are... Um, are opposition to say the least they they are maybe very difficult people um, and it can be discouraging for us to insert our lives into theirs for the sake of trying to help them believe in Jesus that can be hard um, and I say that because I know many of you have shared your stories and they've not been easy as you've tried to share Jesus with people and so I, I want to encourage you as brothers and sisters to find a way to love each other with the gospel, grow together in the gospel, preach the gospel to each other. But how can we help you preach the gospel to those who are lost as well? So as we look at this, with steadfast unity, we work and we serve for Christ's sake together. Now, Some of those other concepts, we're going to come back to those next week and finish up these verses. I'd like to invite you to pray through those things this morning. God, thank you so much for allowing us to be together. I pray that your spirit would lead us to, um, uh, to reflect your kingdom the way you have uh, saved us um, to do. I pray that you would give us the ability to, um, to see your ways and to love your ways and to walk in your ways as individuals. But as a fellowship, I pray that, um, I pray that we would shed light on the truth in such a way that you stand out above all the other teachings um, of the world. I pray that you would help us to exalt Christ. I pray that you would help us to be unified in our spirit, unified in our hearts, in our love for one another, unified in the way we work together, uh, unified in the way we serve together. Lord, I know that we can't be unified like that unless you are with us unless your spirit is producing that fruit in us. So as we strive to be obedient to you, I pray that you would create that effect in us. We desperately need you. And Lord, I pray that you would protect us from sin, guard our hearts from temptation, and help us to love you faithfully with a steadfast consistency. Lord, thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and sing. Thank you for listening to this week's Walk Through the Bible with Hope Fellowship. I leave you with these words from Numbers 6, 24 through 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace.